Listener supported. WNYC Studios. For me, I do a couple things when I'm creating a character. I make a music playlist for them. I think about what their superpower is. And I also have conversations out loud with myself and figure out how they talk. Um, So, you know, do they swear? Do they stutter? Do they pause? Do they use filler words? Things like that. And trying to figure out exactly what their speech pattern is kind of helps inform who they are as a person. It's natural to assume that fiction and nonfiction storytelling are worlds apart. But they have more in common than you think. We're bringing together creators from both genres to explore the overlap. I'm Sarah Gonzalez, and you're listening to The Work It Podcast, a selection of recordings from WNYC's Festival for Women in Audio. Good morning, everyone. I'm Lauren Chippen, and I've got a group of women here who make shows that are pretty different. Some fiction, some nonfiction, and some of of whom do both. Um, And today we're going to talk about what we can learn from each other's genres, and specifically approaches to scripting and building universes and character development. So first, we have Crystal Duhame. Uh, She's the co-creator of CBC's Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection, and Pen Pals, a comedy fiction series that puts unlikely pairs in conversation. Previously, Crystal was a producer for Jonathan Goldstein's Wiretap, a show that very liberally blended fact and fiction. One of her favorite fiction pieces she's ever made is Romeo and Juliet, a reimagining of the star-crossed lovers as texting teenagers in the afterlife, where Romeo ends up in heaven and Juliet in hell. Crystal's nonfiction work often deals with other people's highly personal stories, but last year, for the first time, she put herself at the center of a BBC piece called Takata, in which she tells of, two, of getting two botfly larvae in her head after a trip to Costa Rica. I want to hear that story <laughs> later. She realized in the making of that piece, however, that for a radio producer, she makes for a terrible interviewee. Next, we have Giselle Regatajo, um, who decided that she wanted to be a journalist when she was a teenager growing up in Sao Paulo, Brazil. She has since worked for newspapers, magazines, and websites and public radio stations in Mumbai, Mexico City, Los Angeles, New York, and some smaller cities. She's now a professor of journalism at Baruch College, but she's also a huge fan of telenovelas and theater. So she created and produced Celestial Blood, a radio novella podcast that was released in both English and Spanish in partnership with KCRW Public Radio here in Los Angeles. She says that one of the highlights of her career was to direct Mexican star Kate Del Castillo and chat with her about El Chapo and her dating life. Amber Hunt started her junior high school's first newspaper and has been a devoted journalist ever since. That's a, long, that's a nice long career since yeah. junior high school. She's author of four nonfiction books, including New York Times bestseller The Kennedy Wives, and she's hosted the acclaimed true crime podcast Accused, which I'm sure some, some of you caught yesterday at the How I Make It session, which launches its second season in less than two weeks. Amber is an investigative reporter at the Cincinnati Inquirer. She's also worked as an Associated Press news editor and was an award-winning crime reporter with the Detroit Free Press for nearly eight years. And as I said, I am Lauren Shippen and I make The Bright Sessions, which is a science fiction audio drama about people with supernatural abilities and therapy. So definitely fiction. Um, It was named one of the best podcasts of 2016 by iTunes and we are releasing our fourth season in two weeks on October 18th. And in addition to writing all of the episodes for The Bright Sessions, I've also written for the British podcast sitcom Wooden Overcoats, and I'm currently um, developing The Bright Sessions for television. Um, And you'll have uh, a chance to ask us all questions at the end, so start thinking about those questions now. But first, it's my turn. Um, So when we were first talking about making fiction and nonfiction for some of you, we talked about audience expectations and how sometimes 
the audio format can lend itself to trickery and that sometimes people think something is false that is in fact true and vice versa. Um, and Crystal, you've talked about working on Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein where you'd have conversations with friends and family but they were playing hyperversions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And then in um, Love Me, you're dealing with, with you know, sort of characters that are real people um, right. and creating a narrative around that. And I would love to uh, hear the Love Me clip so we can get some context for what that sounds like. Sure. I woke up the next morning and um, I had an email waiting from him. It started, hello, miss, exclamation point. Hello, miss. How are you? How are you? I was happy. Us encounter. He had just typed out an email in French and fed it into Google Translate. We started just emailing each other back and forth. He complimented me on my beauty. You are beautiful. And my horn beam. Your horn beam is very appealing. What is horn beam? And he said, Google Translate says it means charm. And I said, no, it doesn't, it doesn't, it definitely doesn't. He was working and I was working, so we couldn't see each other, but we were writing like 10, 20, 30 emails to each other a day through Google Translate. I want your magnet. Excuse me? There's something about you that's magnetic. Are you flirting with me? Absolutely. (laughs) So you want to talk a little bit about kind of you know, working in both fiction and nonfiction, and how to make authentic stories that aren't, aren't tricking the audience into thinking one is the other. Right, right. Well, I find the word trickery a little bit, like, that has negative connotations to me. That's so <laughs> I feel like our job as producers is basically just to get to the best story or the best version of a story. Um, obviously, the retelling of something that happened is should be treated as something different than what actually happened because it could be really boring to go into all these details and as producers we kind of highlight certain things, leave out other things and craft it with music and sound. So I think it's we're just using the tools at our disposal and the last clip that you heard that story actually came about in a funny way um, because uh, I was dating an Italian man at the time And I knew a little bit of Italian, but uh, I still had to resort to Google Translate to uh, say certain things. And when you're falling in love with somebody, I think everything feels very fraught and you're just concerned about communicating your feelings uh, very accurately. Um, So I wanted to do a fiction based around that concept and using that device of Google Translate. So uh, what we did is we Googled it to see if any other shows had done that as a fiction before. And it actually led us to this true story of uh, Mac McClellan who's a reporter for the Washington Post and um, and she had written up this true story of her having met her husband basically in Haiti and so we interviewed them both and the use of the robot uh, voice in there as Google Translate we created a character out of it actually as a creative solution to a problem because Nico the man in the story was not a very good talker and so we were kind of forced to push ourselves to think like how could how could this be made more entertaining and also by using that that robot voice as a character we also built in a little bit of tension because 
we don't hear from Nico, the actual Nico, until the end of the story. So that's when you learn, okay, everything did work out fine, and that's how, that's how they got together. Um, so yeah, we're always trying to figure out how to, how to feed fiction techniques back into our nonfiction work. And uh, I think ultimately, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, what we're just trying to do is crystallize a human experience and try to mm-hmm. build bridges to empathy, I guess. Yeah, and Giselle, you've also moved sort of from nonfiction into fiction and, and back. And you said when we were first talking that you felt really liberated by working in fiction, that you felt you can kind of put a cliffhanger anywhere. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about the techniques that changed, or if, like Crystal, you brought in things from nonfiction into fiction or vice versa? Yeah, and I still work as a journalist, of course, and uh, was all actually such an interesting experience, I just decided I want to do a fiction podcast, and I did it. And I feel like just, I think that's the magic of podcasts, that you can come up with an idea and you can do it. It's much more kind of viable and possible than, you know, you'd start it on your own and you can make it happen. Um, So yeah, of course, with journalism, as Krista was saying, you have certain constraints of like what, how the story actually happened and the characters that are part of the story. And for me, with fiction, I mean, I didn't write the podcast. I came up with the idea, but I had a playwright who would write it, and I, then I would edit her work. And I told her like where the cliffhanger should be, and it was like magic <laughs> coming to my screen. It's like, oh, it's there. And uh, but then other things would come up for me, which would be like oh, this cliffhanger in the first episode is a little similar to the second episode, Mm. so how we make it different. And I would suggest, well, can we create another suspense? Um, But the the trick for me with fiction is like the continuity part, because in nonfiction, that's not a problem because it's reality we're dealing with. Uh, But with fiction, sometimes you create set of expectations. It's like, wait, we actually didn't deliver in that, but oh, wait, the way we finished last time, we kind of change the subject. So it was kind of funny for me that uh, you know the playwright maybe wasn't thinking as closely to those things as I maybe as a journalist in me, I was constantly like, what happened to that question we asked? Uh, mm. So I felt like I maybe brought the journalistic side to the creative process to just make sure like the story was making sense, even though maybe that was constraining. Maybe I shouldn't be doing that <laughs> in a way, right? Because fiction is kind of, it can sometimes not make sense, I guess. But yeah. I, I do think that you want it to be grounded, right? And this is yes. something that as a, a fiction writer, I don't, I don't work in nonfiction at all, making the story realistic, even when people have superpowers in the context of my show, is something that I really have to pay attention to. And one thing that comes up a lot is making sure that people sound like they're speaking naturally and that conversations flow naturally. And something that I've heard a lot, talked about a lot in the past two days is silence and how important silence is. Um, You know, when you're interviewing somebody, being silent so that they just continue to talk. And so for me as a writer where I'm constructing all the conversations, using silence is actually a a really important tool. Um, And I've got a clip from my show where a couple of different people with these supernatural abilities have come together in the same room for the first time and they're kind of reacting to each other. And I had to create the dramatic tension in a pretty chaotic scene without any visuals and without you know the exposition that you can sometimes use in documentary. And so I decided to use sort of these big pauses instead. And um, I think, we, yeah, we've got the clip of that. I know you're real. Mark? Oh my God. Mark. You're here. I know, I know, I'm late. I said it'd be a week and it's been eight days. Trust me, it feels a lot longer than that. I'd like to be. 
Damien. Oh, Sam! Sam! Whoa! Oh, hey! God, that hurts! Oh, no kidding! That hurts! Jesus fucking Christ! Hey, whoa, whoa! Everyone, just calm down! Oh, boy. You can do the thing, can't you? Yeah, I... Wait, wait you can... Oh, whoa, whoa, God, it just got really loud in here. Oh, jeez, yeah, sorry, I... Are, are you two communicating telepathically? Huh? What? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, yes, it seems that way. Oh, God, you mean you can... Sam, are you okay? What the hell are you thinking? And I, I don't know, I'm sorry, I just, I just saw him and sort of reacted. But you're here, oh my God, you're really here. Do you have... Sam. I, uh, Sam? Oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. No, Sam. Just stay here. If you can, I'll be back. So for context, that's her time traveling. Um, <laughs> so for, for me, I had to make characters not say what they wanted to say. Um, whereas Amber, you often have the reverse problem where you're trying to get people to talk and they won't. Um, in your show Accused, especially, um, there's one guy, Michael Moser. Do you want to tell us a little bit about him and then we can listen to a clip um, with him in it? Sure, so we, we covered, uh, it's as real as it gets. It's a 1978 murder and um, the lead prosecutor in the county in which this happened happened to be a, um, an assistant prosecutor back in 78 when the crime was committed. So he's an, an important figure in the case, and I really wanted to find out why he wasn't investigating this murder anymore. And so throughout the course of the, the season, you hear me leaving phone messages and me coming into the office and getting rebuffed, and, um, and finally I just showed up at, uh, at a press conference where he happened to be. Yeah, and we've got a clip of that. In early August, after repeated attempts to reach Moser through his assistants, I learned about a press conference being held in the building that houses his office, so Amanda and I attended. Sure enough, Moser was there. He didn't speak at the event and left immediately after the conference ended, so I approached him in the building lobby as he was headed toward the elevators. Here's our exchange. Excuse me, Mr. Moser. Mr. Moser. Excuse me, Mr. Moser. Uh, hi. Oh, hi. I'm with the uh, Enquirer. Hi. I've been trying to hi. set up a meeting with you for some time. Yeah. Really? Could we do that? No. Why is that? Because I'm very busy. Goodbye. Okay. Would, do you happen to know where the evidence is in the uh, Elizabeth Andy's case? You're getting off the elevator now? No, I was just looking for somebody. But um, I might be getting off the elevator. Would you like to tell me why you won't talk to me about this particular case? Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Well, but not it today. would be helpful. But, but not today. Well, could I schedule a time? No. Then? Okay. So if I can't schedule a time and you're telling me that you won't talk to me now, then are you saying no comment? So that's usually what I hear from people who don't want to speak to me. Are you saying no comment? Goodbye. As yeah. a fiction writer, that's such a great, like, tense scene, but I imagine well, it was incredibly you. frustrating. Yeah, you guys are talking about creating silence. There's a lot of silence when you're actually doing this stuff. And then, <laughs> and the, the interesting part is that, as an interview technique, I do leave a lot of space because I want people to fill the space. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, when they are not talking, I, I have trained myself over the years to never quit asking the questions. Um, so they're trying to get out of it. They, sometimes they'll even say no comment, and I still have five more questions, and you'll be amazed how much people 
say just because you're asking a question. So you have to find this balance between leaving room for them to answer when, when you have these pregnant pauses and also when they don't want to answer, peppering them with questions just to get anything. Yeah, and then the narrative comes out of those conversations, right. presumably. But it was very interesting to put this all into a podcast and to hear people responding to, you know, well, it was such an awkward conversation. Guess what? The conversations are awkward, <laughs> especially when you're asking somebody about a murder. So. Yeah, well, and, and you're working with real people and having conversations with real people. You don't have to create characters, and that lends itself to great moments like that that are very tense, but also... People are unpredictable, um, and in order to you know, create that kind of tension in fiction, you have to make sure that you're developing characters that are, are really real. So um, I'd love to talk to you guys about developing characters. Um, for me, I do a couple things when I'm creating a character. I make a music playlist for them. I think about what their superpower is and with this show and how that informs their mental well-being and their relationships with other people. Um, and I also have conversations out loud with myself and figure out how they talk. Um, so, you know, do they swear? Do they stutter? Do they pause? Do they use filler words? Things like that and trying to figure out exactly what their speech pattern is kind of helps inform who they are as a person. And Giselle, you are doing something really unique where you worked in both English and Spanish um, for Celestial Blood. And in developing a show that was going to be in two languages, did that, how did that inform the characters that you were creating? Yeah, so I had no idea, actually, again, because this is my first work in fiction, even though, you know, I go to the theater all the time and go to the movies. I'm a huge consumer of culture, but I had never produced something. So, you know, I hired these four bilingual actors, and I just thought, wow, they're going to come up with different characters. It's actually very hard and very complicated. <laughs> and in one, in the same character in both languages, for me, sounded like a completely different character. So it was, like, fascinating. Each actor played between four and six roles throughout the whole thing, and each one of them basically had to develop, like... 12 characters, eight characters that were like completely different. And sometimes we would try something and wasn't working. Sometimes I would recast the actors and say like, I don't think this voice is working for this actor. Maybe we'll change the actors. And, but mm. I was actually amazed at, uh, and now hearing from you, like how you develop a character. <laughs> sometimes they would have to record themselves to remember the voice they created for that character. Sometimes they would change it and then we would have to change the tease that we had done for before because they had since changed the character. Wow. I was just like fascinated by, I had no idea this was like so complicated. Yeah, we've got a clip of the show in English that we can, we can listen to. It's so quiet here. Yeah, a lot different from Queens, huh? Are we gonna tell mom about Linda? For what? Linda's crazy and dad's buried, nothing else to tell. I thought you were the one who hated keeping secrets. What if mom calls us? She says she wanted us to keep her posted. After all this time, if mom ever, even once, really wanted to know what was going on with dad when he wasn't with her... Yeah? Yeah. She won't call. They're right. Sol and Mundo's mom probably doesn't know about Linda. Linda was Arturo Lucero's most recent wife. I say most recent because there were other wives. None of them know about each other. Yet. And the last voice you heard is Kate Del Castillo, who is this very famous Mexican actress. She's the one who introduced El Chapo to Champagne. That's why I mean the El Chapo. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and um, I don't speak Spanish, but I listened to the, the first episode in Spanish just to get an idea of the vibe, and it, and it felt, you know, this 
very similar to me. And in making the show, were there any scenes that felt very different in terms of the, the sort of the tone and the relationship between the two people in different languages? I think they sound very different. Okay. I think this is really like a Spanish podcast in Spanish. That was how I started as a project. I wanted to do something by Hispanics for Hispanics. Uh, so I actually feel everything sounds completely different. It's funny that you feel like sounds similar. Uh, I mean, just sort of the, 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 you know, the sound of the voices and yeah. the vibe of the, the podcast felt the same, even though I couldn't understand what they were saying. I know. I guess because for me, you know, this is very much a Hispanic thing. Um, but most, a lot of people listen in English still, right? And right. I feel like they um, also enjoyed, and I had great feedback on both languages. But of the peop my, people I know who are bilingual who listen to both, they often said they like the Spanish one better. Okay, interesting. Something feels it's more like authentic, maybe. It's like the core of what or... it is, yeah. Okay. Um, and Amber, you introduced a lot of characters, you know, or real people, sort of these uh, these podcast versions of them, early on that we didn't actually hear until a few episodes in. Did you ever worry that sort of talking about them before we actually hear from them would change the audience opinion when they eventually did meet them? We were mindful of how we were presenting people, but we, we also were learning about the characters as we reported. So uh, some of them changed in our perception um, from what they look like on paper. There was a maintenance man, for example, who, who was uh, worthy of interviewing in this murder case. And when I first read about him, I was like, you know, he's got a criminal past, this is creepy, but my perception of him changed drastically when I actually sat down to interview. So for me, that was pretty authentic to have people's perception change a little bit mm. uh, because that's real life. I mean, you get one idea in your head about how a person is and then it, it changes when you actually sit down and talk to them. So just having the fluidity to follow that narrative and instead of sort of having a rigid exactly. idea of... Right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and Crystal, with adapting two characters that are very well known to us, Romeo and Juliet, and putting them kind of in this 21st century heaven and hell context. What was that like in terms of taking characters that we knew really well and kind of you know, poking fun at them a little bit? Well, it's funny. I was just thinking about the difference between nonfiction and fiction, how you were talking about we spend all this time in fiction trying to develop the character and making them feel real. Um, and a bulk of the, the fiction writer's work is to make people invest emotionally in these characters. And you spend like a lot of the beginning of the story just trying to convince the listeners that this character has, has lived a life before you have encountered them. Um, and so part of the way, uh, one of the tools that we use to try to avoid having to give all this backstory um, is to draw on really familiar situations or characters. And so, for example, we did a fiction where uh, it, was, it was basically like a family of, uh, of 10 different family members trying to get together to get one good family photo. And so it's a situation that everybody can relate to. You don't have to explain too much visually. You kind of get what's going on right off the top of the fiction. Um, so it's the same kind of idea with Romeo and Juliet and the Pen Pals series was that it, we were using iconic characters that people had either an affinity for or just some sort of experience with in the past so that we didn't have to weigh the fiction down at the top of the story trying to explain who these people were, where they were coming from. And then we could kind of like spin off into this really surreal territory and play with those character traits that people knew, knew them for, but then like take them in a totally different direction. 
Right, so providing sort of a familiar context negates the need for narration, mm -hmm. whereas Giselle, Celestial Blood does use narration. Do you mm -hmm. want to talk about why you guys decided to do that and what that process was like? Yeah, we did, and at the beginning, we had just a little bit of the narrator, and then I had like different people listen to the first episode and give me feedback in terms of, are you following the story? Do you like it? What's working? What's not working? And a lot of people said, to, few people, I should say, said they were a little confused. And it's funny, because I felt like, well, we're tr not everything is clear when you start listening to a podcast that is fiction, right? Or when you're watching a TV show, you're like, oh, I, I guess I know what's going on. And I felt for me that was a natural thing, but some people felt like, I'm confused. So I was like, okay, so let's put more of the narrator. And, the, and then also, what I didn't want to have like the boring narrator type, just mm -hmm. like telling you what's going on too much. I felt like that was um, not interesting. So we turned her into a commentator type, and that's, again, Kate Del Castillo. So what she does, she's almost like the listener's ears during the story because she's giving commentary and she's like, oh, that's absurd. Why, are you, why do you believe what he's saying to you? That doesn't make any sense. So she became kind of her own character. So I felt like for me that was my compromise. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I can put more of this narrator if you feel this is, you can follow it so, so well, but I'm going to make this narrator kind of a little bit more interesting. That was the idea. Did that change the rest of the script at all when you decided to add in more narration? Changed everything. I had to write everything again. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the idea of, of a, the narrator as a character is a really interesting concept in fiction, and it's something that we almost have in, in nonfiction. And Amber, you've said that you don't like to put yourself in your stories, but that for accused it felt dishonest. Why did it feel dishonest to not be in there? Well, so we wrote the first draft without much first person in it, and it, it didn't, it felt like we were forcing it, because the truth was that these people were being asked these questions for the first time in 40 years by me and my producer, Amanda Rossman. We, we were becoming part of the story because we were the catalyst for getting the thing reopened. Uh, so when we wrote it the first time, it was very clinical, and it, it didn't, it, it just didn't sing. And so I had to say, okay, I need to, I need to rework this. I need to be honest about what we're doing here, um, and and really be transparent about the whole process. And if it if it's going to resonate with people, great. If not, at least we know we are being honest about the whole thing. And so then you do end up as a narrator being part of the story, whether you want to be or not. It's so intimate to be in somebody's ear yeah. and, and to ask yeah. for that for, you know, six, eight hours, whatever the length of the season is. Um, it, it just, it would have been a writing challenge to pretend that I wasn't the one knocking on the doors. So I had, I had to show that. Yeah. And we're going to um, take some questions soon. So if you guys want to start lining up the microphones, we've got them here and here. Um, and uh, so when you have an opinion on somebody that you're interviewing, is that something that you always share with the audience? Or were there some things that you kind of kept yourself because it would have gotten in the way of the narrative? Oh, it definitely would have gotten in the way. But luckily, I mean, I have been a journalist for 20 years. I have learned how to not always be honest with myself about my opinions because I'm well aware that I could be freaking wrong. I could be wrong. Um, these, in, in my story, the, the police who thought that they had the right guy 
they probably weren't malicious. They just believed it, and they and they put their blinders on, and they and they kept going. And I refused to let myself do that. So for me, it's it's pretty easy to set aside my my personal leanings. It informs my questions, but I don't draw conclusions. And so that part of it is honest too. Where I'm I'm just saying, you know, this person is worth talking to. I don't know if he did it, but he was worth talking to. Right. Is yeah. that something that you've encountered as well, Giselle, in your journalism of putting yourself kind of in, in the story that you're telling? And no, usually journalism is like a no-no. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, and I've worked in public radio my whole life, uh, a lot of my life, and newspapers, magazines, I usually don't do that at all. And that's also one thing that podcasts change, right? You really had, you opened that curtain, and now it became, the process of doing it became part of the story. Exactly. And I feel like that's kind of a nice thing about it but I still so I still do podcasts and I also do public radio stories or other kinds of stories where I'm like I'm not there at all yeah and I teach like my students <laughs> journalism students like usually you're not there at all uh, but then you can be right so right. but it, it sounds I think very different and it's just the long form that allows for it and it has it's you know it's a very different concept okay and, well, and just so you were, yeah. we wrote, a, we had a special section in print, and that was completely traditionally done. There was oh, no right. first person in that whatsoever. Wow. So that was an 11,000-word story oh, wow. just, you know, following the normal journalism rules. But because of the podcast format, that's, that was important to, to insert because it otherwise would have felt faked. Right. Yeah. And Crystal, yes. you said you've been the subject of, of the story yourself, and that you weren't a good interviewee. What, what, does, that, what does it mean? Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, I think it's because I've edited so many interviews that I know how it's supposed to sound on mm. the other end of things. And so what happens is I begin to try to edit myself as I speak. Oh. And then <laughs> I just end up sounding like a, a, a robot. And uh, yeah, it's just not something I'm comfortable with. I've always been a behind the, the other side of the glass and the studio person. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it is It is important to, sure, to make sure that if you're putting yourself in the story that you're maintaining who you are. And I think that that is what makes it effective. You know, I, I act in my podcast and... In truth, the character I play is a fictionalized version of myself in many ways. I mean, I can't time travel, but that's sort of where the differences end. And it's something that I found to be really effective with audiences. They feel like they're really able to connect to the character because she feels real to them, because it's me. You know, She is a real person in many ways, just with this added layer of sort of science fiction on top of it. So I think, I think particularly your, your point about how intimate it is to be in somebody's ear um, and how putting yourself kind of right up against against their earbuds is something that's really effective in storytelling, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. But was that intentional, that your character is inspired by you, or just kind yeah, of Yeah, it, it, it was a bit. Um, and, you know, we've sort of grown apart in some ways. You know, she's grown one way and I've grown another way. Um, but certainly when, when it started, she was kind of just a science fiction alternate universe blueprint of, of myself. Um, I wonder how you feel about, because your podcast has been optioned to be made into a television series. Yes, yeah. Like, how do you feel, what do you think is going to be lost or what do you think is going to be enhanced? I'm, I'm honestly thrilled to kind of pass that role off to somebody else um, because uh, it's, it's a role that um, was inspired a lot by my struggle with anxiety and with panic attacks. Um, the, the whole thing is that she time travels involuntarily when she has panic attacks. And it's been really cathartic to kind of, you know, 
perform that through her. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, you know, I, <laughs> I'm ready to let her go and let somebody else kind of, kind of take care of her. Um, and I, you know, it'll be impossible to know, I think, what's going to be lost or gained mm. until I actually have the actor, um, which we're, we're far from those stages. Um, but I want to make sure we get to some questions. If we can start over here. Um, hello, my Hi. name is Amber Hi. Phillips, and I am the host of a podcast called The Black Joy Mixtape, where news and politics and comedy. I'm also known as the High Priestess of Black Joy. But, um, <laughs> amazing. And it's true. Um, so, my question for you is before I got into podcasts, I was obsessed with audiobooks, and it was because I listened to one of my favorite writers, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were mm. Watching God, yes, read by Ruby D. If you have not heard mm. that audio, it's like, Ru like Ruby D, like reading <laughs> Zora Neale Hurston. It's beautiful. And I know, um, I'm glad you asked the question about adaptations. We talk a lot about turning books into movies, but what does it mean to put them back into audio with more um, storytelling capabilities? Because I didn't know it was a thing until I heard Bronzeville, um, mm. led by Lorenz Tate, to hear these like stories um, in real time. So I wanted to know, because audio is so new, is there a process yet, um, and are there rules around that yet? And have you all um, tried um, started thinking about those pieces? In terms of adapting things yeah, into audio? Or, mm -hmm. I mean, I think the, the rules are probably the same with anything else. I mean, with Romeo and Juliet, you know, that's Shakespeare, so you can kind of do whatever you want with, with that, right? Right. Um, but I know that, you know, Audible is getting into the podcast game and that they're there are things coming out that are sort of a mix of audiobook and audio drama, sort of you know, more traditional radio drama. Um, but I, I'm personally of the mind that you know you can make any story work in any format. It's just about finding the, the strength within that story that's going to work within that format. Um, so, but in terms of the process of adapting, I've never adapted anything, and I don't know any. Well, I can speak to that a little because before I commissioned the playwright to write my podcast, mm -hmm. I tried to do something that already existed, and I read like dozens of plays written in Spanish, and I felt like nothing would work. Mm -hmm. I felt like you know because all, there were plays and. Right. They were so visual, and I felt like it was so much part of the story that I was like, we have to start from scratch and do something that is made for audio. Mm -hmm. I guess for books are different because you can just listen to a book. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt like it had to start from, yeah, from audio. Yes. It's pretty interesting, though, to hear audio referred to as something new. It's not new, right. but it feels yeah, yeah. so exciting right, right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. I think also one of the things that audio is great at, which is similar to books, is that you're drawing on the listener as an active participant in what you're creating. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the trick in audio is to always like find the balance, because you're trying to help people get to the images of what's being described quicker. But you also don't want to step on that active component of the brain that is trying to fill that out, because I feel like that is what lends the intimacy to it, because you're filling in all these images with your own life experiences. And so if you give too much sound, if you kind of use too much literal sound, we like to use really like suggestive sound instead. Um, yeah, you could step on what makes it special, I think, and similar to books. So it's interesting like to go from something like a book to audio. Uh, I feel like you can enhance the experience a little bit, but it's also you have to be careful with it to not step on that. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I think over here. Hi, my name is Florencia. I'm trying to produce a fiction in South America, in Argentina, and I like to know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm. 
Which is your advice in order to produce fiction in Spanish? Podemos hablar en español? Sí, podemos. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm joking. <laughs> um, I just do you write fiction or I'm trying to produce fiction. Oh, okay. I I'm writing. Oh, now you're writing. Excellent. But uh, for me, it's hard to um, to show uh, in the script how. Um, okay, um, sorry. How can? Para hablar en español, yo okay. puedo traducir. Para mí es es difícil cómo digamos introducir el lenguaje sonoro ah, sí, en el sí, guión. Sí. O sea, cómo atrapar a la audiencia, cómo hacer que la audiencia que prevalezca el sonido en en, en el podcast, ¿no? So she's saying for her it's a challenge how to make the audio like prevail in the story and make it like very much an audio story. Mm. Um, so I would say the more you listen to other stuff, the better. And there are some great podcast fiction in Spanish. Are you familiar with El Gran Apagón? Sí, sí. Spain has been doing some interesting work and they have been quite popular, which I'm quite glad. And not the case too in a lot of Latin America. Um, So I think the more you listen to it, the better you will get at it. And I think you might have to hire like a sound person, like an engineer type. In my case, I, I hired this amazing sound designer. She did, you know, a lot of the work of like making the sound real, introducing sounds. She had like access to this huge library. She recorded a lot of stuff herself um, because that's kind of what makes the like the sound landscape work. And that's a heavy lifting for you to do all by yourself, right? So try to concentrate on the story and then think about like what kinds of sounds you would like. And you always have to think of them as you would in a play, right? What's happening on the stage? You have to think what's happening in the sound and then get somebody to make that happen for you. Did you understand everything? Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Gracias. Hi, so my name's, oh. Hi, so my name's Mickey and I'm currently in pre-production for a Choose Your Own Adventure podcast. Um, so I have a question for Giselle, and because we have a narrator who's also kind of a commentator who's directing your options as the listener can choose, how do you not ensure that the narrator is impeding the characters too much and actually changing how people hear them? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so in my story, the narrator hears everything and comments on everything, but the characters don't know she's there. So she makes these jokes about their decisions, but they don't interact with her. And sometimes she's like, wait, can you hear me? Uh, are you talking to me? But they are not, you know? So it's kind of also part of the joke. So that's how we decided to go about it. Um, but I think, again, I think you have to be very careful because I feel the narrator could be like, you're giving too much. You're just like chewing it too much for the audience, right? You want to make it a little bit like, I like that feeling when you are getting into a story, as I said earlier, I'm like, I'm not really understanding what's going on. It's part of getting into the experience, right? It's like, I have to keep listening to understand why is this character saying that? What's behind this mystery, I, right? So I didn't want the narrator to kind of dump it all from the beginning. Awesome, thank you. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm actually wondering about the role of visuals in podcast world building. Uh, I direct a fiction podcast called Steal the Stars, and it takes place in an Area 51 type facility. And we commissioned an artist to do renderings of the facility and the spaceship and the alien. And is that a gift to our audience to, to give them those visuals, or are we intruding on their ability to imagine what the place looks like? 
Oh, this is a great question, because it's something that I've wondered a lot about as well. Um, we don't have any kind of visual component in terms of you know character representation, and we're, we're not working with a space like a, you know a hangar or anything mm-hmm. like that. It's, it's all in the therapy room, so people can kind of imagine what that looks like. Um, but we do have some character social media, so a couple of our characters have Instagram or Tumblr, um, one of them has a blog, and so there are there are pictures on there, and one thing, I, I've, one of the Instagrams I've sort of given over to the actor who plays the character, and one thing that I've, I've been very adamant about is making sure that he never shows like the color of his skin or his hair color or anything that would suggest a canonical physical appearance for the character, because it's really important to us that the audience is able to imagine themselves, whoever they may be, as these characters. Um, but in terms of the world, I, I, would, I, mean, I would love to see what, what Hangar 11 looks like. If you guys haven't listened to Steal the Stars, it's incredible. Um, Thank you. And what the, I, I think you know, with an alien or something that's a little bit more out there, it can be fun to leave that to the imagination. But in terms of, of actual sort of structures, I don't know. I, I could, it could go either, either way. Do you guys have any opinions on this? Well, I feel like you give the option. The listener who doesn't want to go to your website and yeah. see won't feel like I prefer to imagine. But I love having that as like an extra. Yeah, as a little bonus on the, on the website. Yeah, I think that could be really, really fun. I guess it also depends if it's impressionistic artwork or if it's very, I'm, I'm not sure if it's very like documentary, because um, I think it could also like set the tone for mm-hmm. what you're listening to. Is it like concept art or? Uh, the the alien and the spaceship are a little more conceptual, but the the Hangar 11 the schematic looks kind of like a blueprint, like or a, a vague sense of a blueprint for mm-hmm. the actual space because so much takes place in the space. Um, so I, you know, we thought it would be neat to give the most sense of that. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think that listeners who don't want your input on it just won't go there. Right. Yeah. yeah I think I think it's but people who are looking to understand what the writer has in mind will be happy to visit. So I, I think it's a good option. Yeah. yeah As a nonfiction person. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Saida Garrett. I'm a singer-songwriter, and I'm looking forward to, oh, oh otherwise known as Queen of the Universe. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, right. I'm looking to do a podcast, um, and this is why I'm here, to learn the hows and the, what, and the pitfalls. But as I walked in, I heard someone say something about a bug in the ear. I want to hear that story. Larvae in the ear? That's that's my story. Yeah, Yeah. okay. I'm going to sit down because I want to hear that story. I want to hear that story. Yeah, well, this is is a piece that we produced for the BBC. um, And basically it tells the story. This was about five years ago now. I went to Costa Rica, I went hiking in the jungle, and when I came back, I had been bitten by a few mosquitoes, and when I came back, I started feeling these weird prickly sensations in my scalp. And uh, long story short, uh, at the end of five weeks, it was discovered that I had two bot fly larvae. Um, Yeah, they were like, had grown into these welts in my scalp and um, the doctors removed them. Um, But we made a sort of uh, surreal uh, piece about it in which I imagine that the inside of my head is, is this apartment and there's this landlord showing these two botfly larvae around the space and uh, 
Uh, yeah, it's on the BBC. I think I, I could I could send the link if if anybody's curious. But yeah, so we can listen yeah. to that online. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. God, that that's terrifying. <laughs> but you're okay now. I'm fine. <laughs> but can I ask the queen, the queen of the universe, what are you thinking uh, after being here for a while? What are some of your your ideas? Can I ask? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> Ask the queen anything, darling. <laughs> Thank you. I am very curious. Initially, my idea was, since I, um, uh, I toured with you know some pretty amazing artists, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Quincy Jones, Sergio Mendes, oh. and I have a lot of stories about that. And I thought it would be interesting to interview the artists, the songwriters, the producers who were responsible for a lot of the music that we have grown accustomed to and that is in our DNA from having grown up with it. And I thought it would be interesting to tell or to hear them tell their stories about the making of these albums and movies and different projects and getting maybe the the producer on off the wall with the, the songwriter on off the wall and maybe the video director who did the video for it was I, I had access to all these people and I thought it would be an interesting idea for a podcast. Yeah. But yeah. then Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> but then yesterday I learned that that might be good for I don't know, ten, twelve episodes. What am I gonna talk about on the one hundredth episode? I there are a lot of musicians out there. Yeah. 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 But yeah. do you think it, that um, it's, it, it would be narrow, kind of a narrow audience? I don't, I don't, I don't think no. so. No. I think there's also opportunity to do shorter run series now as well. So I don't, I don't think that, y you know, you, you have to necessarily think of it as a forever <laughs> thing or a hundred yeah. episode thing. <laughs> that was like really Showcase, Radiotopia Showcase is doing like great run shorter shorter series yeah, like so not episodes. everything needs to be like a forever yeah, podcast right. 12 episodes can be a whole complete series that could be really really interesting okay yeah. but also i learned yesterday that one of the um uh reporters on stage or narrators said she just polled her audience and asked them a question of 20 somethings and then they sent in questions and then the whole panel answered mm -hmm. their questions oh. that is such an easier road to take because <laughs> then all the work is kind of done for you and you just edit you select this and, and then you talk about it I loved that idea so mm. I was kind of relieved yesterday <laughs> when I left here but um, I'm gonna give some more thought about and and thank you for your support of that idea yeah and also, welcome welcome to podcast I, world thank you I would like to invite um, you to um, ask me if I want to be on any of your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And with that, we will. We are out of time. Thank you. <laughs> that was Crystal Duhame, Amber Hunt, Giselle Regatau, and Lauren Shippen speaking at the 2017 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Annenberg Foundation. Event sponsors include Cole Haan, Mac Cosmetics, and thirdlove.com.